You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I've partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoppinStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoppinStore.com. DearHoppinStore.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're talking about the tyranny of evidence-based medicine. Sounds good. Medicine should be evidence-based. It shouldn't be based on folklore. It shouldn't be based on superstition. Uh, But it turns out that EBM, which is the acronym assigned evidence-based medicine, is now being used as a cudgel to make doctors adhere to restrictive guidelines in treating their patients. In effect, we've got paint-by-numbers medicine as a result of EBM. And a major critic of EBM today, our guest, the author of this article, The Tyranny of Evidence-Based Medicine, Dr. Richard Ammerling. Uh, He's a board-certified nephrologist. He's taught uh, in medical school. Uh, He is currently Associate Medical Director of America's Frontline Doctors, a controversial organization because they advocate uh, uh, nimble strategies for dealing with COVID. Uh, Some of the medications that are not approved by the mainstream, things like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and um, also a staunch advocate of private practice medicine. Uh, He is a past president of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. Okay, let's get to uh, the AMA. Uh, the AMA is said to be the voice of American medicine. Uh, but turns out only about 15% of doctors belong to the American Medical Association. They don't see it in their interest to belong and pay the hefty dues. Uh, maybe get a discount on rental cars or on uh, life insurance. Uh, or uh, maybe uh, uh, you know a few percent off on medical software. But uh, what, where did AMA go wrong, and, and what, how has it been commandeered? Recently, uh, AMA has gone woke. They issued a bunch of guidelines, uh, which are very strange, almost Orwellian, with new speak about you know, how to address uh, minority groups. You can no longer talk about uh, ex-convicts. Uh, you, you know, have to refer to them as disadvantaged people who have, uh, I don't know, there's some <laughs> circuitous language that they use uh, to, uh, that is supposedly not prejudicial and suggests that uh, people uh, are victims inevitably of the system. Yeah, Ron, I mean, all of these organizations, I think, are, getting hijacked and have been getting hijacked by the left. Uh, the, the left has always been extremely good at infiltrating these uh, big-name organizations. They've been doing it for years. You just get a few people in there, a few staffers, and they run policy. I mean, the, the figurehead 
presidents and the vice presidents and the various officers come and go. It's really the permanent staff that run these organizations. And you get a few lefties in there and they're going to change the policy around before you know it. There's not very good control, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why AAPS has been so good and, and so, been so solid. They don't let that kind of stuff happen. I mean, we have a board. We have careful rules how board members are selected. And that's how we've been able to stay on course and on track over many decades now. Uh, AMA, no such thing. They got co-opted by government very early on who bought the rights to their coding books, uh, the coding systems that they own. They own the property rights, the, pat the uh, copyright on that stuff. So that's a big source of their revenue. They don't make much money from dues. There aren't many members. I think they, they probably, you know, they get to the medical students and they get to the residents and they say, yes, come join the AMA. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. Uh, and they join and they, they either don't, don't ever quit or they forget that this is really a left-wing organization now that's part of the government. So they have been uh, pro-vaccine. They have been, I mean, pro these COVID shots. I'm not talking about vaccines in general. Pro and, these and shots. Pro-mandate. Pro-mandate as well, which is... Which and pro-mandate. Yeah. yeah. And pro-mandate. Absolutely. So they, they have become uh, tyrannical. Uh, now, apparently woke, you know, they're pushing a rewrite of medical literature to include all the, the mandatory woke terms and explanations for the new reality, which is that every there is no such thing as actually disease. It's all a question of white supremacy and and victimization and oppression of some sort. It's I, when I first saw this, I thought it was the Babylon B-Ron. I, I kid you not. I thought this someone sending me a spoof here. No, this can't be true. But they're they're serious about this stuff. Well, here, here's an example. Yeah, I'm going to be giving an example from their guidelines. You can find it at the AMA website. The term meritocracy. You know, when we were, uh, you know, working hard to get into med school and to perform well, and then you know obtain uh, career positions. Uh, you know, it, it was a big commitment, and you know we. Uh, successfully entered the field of medicine. Uh, you know, we pursued careers. Here's what they say about meritocracy. A social system where social advancement is based on one's capabilities and merits rather than family, wealth, or social background and connections. It is also associated with a commonly heard phrase of, quote, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which I guess is a, not a PC thing to say anymore. Pulling yourself up by were you were you born with a silver spoon in your mouth, uh, uh, Richard? Uh, har hardly. Okay. Hardly. Uh, no, I, I yeah. had a struggle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so this this idea of individualism, uh, meritocracy, uh, uh, capitalism itself uh, is thought to be based on uh, racial uh, uh, exclusions. And, you know, that it is, mm -hmm. it is inherently a, a racist concept. According to, this is the American Medical Association. I'm not sure what this has to do with medicine, but that's what you're going to get. Uh, okay. So, you know, there, there, what's going on? I mean, there, when we talk about, uh, you know, big pharma, we know that big pharma is going to try and gain an advantage, but how did all these forces align? Uh, government, uh, and big pharma, and the health bureaucracy, which is headed by Fauci, and of course there's the NIH and the CDC, uh, the universities, the medical schools, 
uh, and then the media. How did they all kind of align around uh, a rather tyrannical perspective on COVID? Uh, I think that the principal players are Pfizer and the big pharma companies that are profiting beyond their wildest dreams from this. I mean, Pfizer reported over 20 billion in sales in a quarter, in a quarter. The biggest drug they ever had before this was Lipitor, another loser, by the way, frankly, based on e- the, you know crappy EBM studies, which we should get into more a little bit because I need, need yeah, to we, go we into more Yeah, we can actually take a segue to that because uh, I yeah, think that, yeah. that prior to COVID, uh, that was actually one of the biggest uh, campaigns, successful campaigns to inculcate uh, fear and paranoia about cholesterol in the American public uh, and then to market uh, drugs. Which, you know, look, I prescribe statins. I, you've prescribed statins. There's a time and place for these. But uh, the universal application of statins to everyone who has uh, borderline cholesterol is folly. Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why I knew from the beginning that this Pfizer shot was bogus because of my experience in how they marketed Lipitor, which was their prior big blockbuster. I mean, and they would have a a billion or two a year. And that was great for them. Now, by the way, they've had nothing since. From what I hear, they're sort of like, you know, they were in bad shape. before. The, the, so, the so-called pipeline had dried up. The pipeline had dried up. Had dried up, up completely. Yeah, because they, you know, it's, so they, they didn't want to take a chance it. on Alzheimer's drugs <clears throat> because they would all crash and burn. Uh, yep. And they really kind of were um, in a little bit of a funk. Yeah, absolutely. They were in bad shape and their shareholders, uh, they think their share price was beaten down, rightfully so. So this has been the uh, goose that lays the the millions of golden eggs for them like they've never seen before. And they're, they, they, they have so much financial gain here that anything is possible. And I therefore attribute most of what we are seeing to them and the other big <clears throat> pharma players. Moderna, which is uh, partially owned by the government, apparently. They own the patent on the, their, their shot. Uh, Gates financed them. Gates has money everywhere. Gates is a big player in all this, but we, we don't need to get into that. China is a big player in censorship, and we're kind of following the Chinese model of uh, state-sponsored tyranny in pretty much everything we've done from the beginning, including the lockdowns, uh, masking, etc., none of which helped, all of which made things worse. But I really do think pharma and the the whole Lipitor story was instructive to me because Lipitor, by the way, I don't prescribe statins simply because I think that they lower the number, but they don't really improve the patient and they probably are much more harmful than good. But Lipitor was sold exactly the same way that these shots have been sold using the relative risk reduction. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we talked about this on a prior show. Using the relative risk reduction, the Lipitor advertisement said, reduce your risk of a heart attack by 36% or some number like that, right? Sounds good. When you looked at the fine print, it said there was 1% fewer heart attacks in the in the treatment group compared to the placebo group. Mm-hmm. So they took a 1% actual risk reduction and created a 33 or 36% relative risk reduction by pure mathematical trickery. So, for example, the I think there was something like uh, 90, uh, there was 3% heart attacks in the 
placebo group, 2% in the Lipitor group. So that 1% difference you divide by the three, that's your 33%. Right, right. So that's how they did it. So when I, when I saw the 95% efficacy numbers for Pfizer, first of all, just as a skeptical scientific clinician, right. when you see- Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen rim? a vaccine that's 95? I mean, I'm not pretty sure- you know, in the in the realm of respiratory illnesses, that's that's not happening. Why would that no, happen when the flu vaccine is so relatively inefficacious? How how likely is it that three or four brand new uh, vac so called vaccines, which are which are actually you know gene therapy based treatments, would come out and have such astoundingly good results with so few side? It is absolutely inconceivable that this could be true. Right. Just as a, as a, as a skeptical clinician of many years duration, I didn't believe it from the beginning. And then when I saw this 95%, I said, that's got to be a relative risk reduction. And sure enough, this guy, Ronald Brown, is a very clever PhD from our home turf in New York City, wrote a nice article explaining how they did it. And it's the same thing, right? They, they took the number of cases of COVID. Uh, and by the way, of course, they're using very soft endpoints in these studies. And as part of the EBM issue, no one really learns in medical school anymore how to pick apart a study. They don't get this kind of training right. that you need to be able to analyze a study and say, this is hogwash. But one of the things that they do is they choose a soft endpoint. And that's what they did in, this, in these studies. The endpoint was not reduction in mortality, that's a hard endpoint. Not reduction in hospitalization, it's a hard endpoint. No, it was the reduction of serious symptoms. Well, what's a serious symptom? So the whole thing is very fungible from the beginning, and it makes you wonder. And other things about how these studies were presented and done makes you also wonder, such as the 3,400 or so uh, patients that they said had suspected but unconfirmed disease that they, elim they eliminated from the anal analysis. So things like that make you wonder. Well, but but let's, you know, let's, even, yeah, yeah. let's even let's even stipulate that uh, at their inception uh, or in the preclinicals uh, that the vaccines were very effective. And, you know, I said to myself, OK, you know, 95 percent, that sounds a little too good to be true. Uh, TGTBT. But yes. uh, but uh, let's see what happens in the post-marketing studies that we right, we're very familiar with that because we've seen a lot of drugs uh, uh, introduced. I think you are well aware of the Celebrex and the Vioxx uh, fiascos. These were introduced as revolutionary new drugs to curb uh, inflammation uh, that would not have any negative effects on the stomach, uh, and were going to be you know the bomb against any inflammatory <laughs> disorders. And then what we saw was. Uh, a, a lot of side effects emerged afterwards, and B, uh, lack of uh, efficacy beyond, you know, let's just take an ordinary Advil uh, for very expensive right. drugs. So that, you know, we countless experiences with that for us veteran physicians made us skeptical. But what, what I'm about to say is we did not envision, or perhaps some of us who were naive and gullible did not envision that there would be a breakthrough. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a breakthrough. We're seeing an awful breakthrough, especially with the new variant, the Omicron uh, variant. Um, and it, it suggests that we're moving the goalposts continually on the vaccines. Like, hey, like, great. Um, you know, everybody needs a booster now. Maybe in Israel, they're talking about a fourth shot and on and on it goes. We're going to formulate new tweaks on the vaccine. 
uh, and keep kicking the ball down the down the down the field. Uh, and and by the way, this is not to diminish, in my opinion, the efficacy of the vaccine uh, at curbing the severity of COVID. I think uh, I think it's fairly well established uh, that in the vast majority of cases. Uh, people who uh, uh, have get COVID have less severe COVID when they take the vaccine. But the question is the risk-benefit equation, the durability of this, and also our uh, distraction from other plausible therapies, uh, from therapeutics as opposed to preventives. Right. And the amazing hype and coercion to give it to everybody in the world, literally, through force of uh, losing your job, which is what happened to me. You know, I refused to take the shot because I'm skeptical. I didn't I wanted more information about it. And I wasn't going to take it. And St. George's University, where I was teaching, said, no, you have to take it. You're going on administrative leave. And that mm-hmm. is my status with them. Yeah. Uh, and, so and to, 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 to the detriment of, uh, of that institution and, and your students, not just for you personally. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah, because they have a gifted, they have a gifted experienced practitioner on their faculty. And, yeah. you know, because of that, uh, the rigidity around that rule. And that's happening. That's multiplied by thousands and tens of thousands across the country, dedicated uh, health professionals, many of whom have had COVID. Uh, plausibly yeah. believe that they have natural immunity and they're being forced to take sure. the vaccine. And in Europe, they take a right. more nuanced approach in many countries. Yeah, that's that's true. Europe has is probably under less pharma pressure than the U.S., which is where really where it's focused. Yeah, no, I uh, also uh, eventually got COVID. I have antibodies. I'm, I'm immune. Uh, all the variants, they can come after me. I'm not going to worry about them. I was also practicing nephrology down there in, on the island and doing dialysis, which they badly needed, by the way, and to not be able to stay there. And wow. the government, of course, imposed the vaccine passport. So I'm not I'm not allowed back in the country. Wow. So they've lost a, a good clinician. What can I say? It, I feel horrible for the people down there. They're they're being abused. Uh, they're they're my friends. They're my family now. I mean, I really just uh, it, it's a very sad story what's going on down there. And re- and they had no covid. They had zero COVID on the island for over a year. Hmm. And I advised them. I said, look at what happened in the Seychelles. Look at what happened in Gibraltar. Look at what happened in Israel, in the UK. Everywhere they've had big vaccine rollouts, there's a huge Delta surge. And the, and this is exactly what happened down there. There was zero COVID. Then they suddenly had like, you know, a thousand cases and over a hundred dead. They had one death over the entire course of the pandemic. Now they have well over a hundred. All of it preventable. So very sad, very sad what's going on there. But where were we? I mean, oh, yeah, the, the relative risk reduction and the Pfizer shot, I knew right away that this was going to be bogus. And I pointed this out to the school. I said the absolute risk reduction in Pfizer was 0.7%. Mm-hmm. So when you see that and you see that they don't report it, they kept it out of their filing. Uh, and that's why Ron Brown deserved credit, Malcolm Kendrick, and Peter Doshi, one of the intrepid editors of the intrepid British Medical Journal, mm-hmm. who I have to give a hat tip to. He has done that. They're, they're a little bit uh, more open-minded than some of the other journals. The other journals are very monolithically yeah. uh, in Absolutely. lockstep with the with the mainstream narrative. But BMJ uh, gets to publish occasionally some somewhat dissenting viewpoints. Yes, and Peter Doshi has been great on this whole issue, taking apart the Pfizer data. And 
he he actually testified at another Ron Johnson Senate hearing, which is well worth finding if you can, if you can find these things because they censor them so quickly. Again, shockingly, uh, but he brought up the Tamiflu story. Remember that? Yes, one? yes, and that's another fiasco, right? Yeah, the government bought another up like fiasco. a huge stockpiles of Tamiflu in the face of I guess it was H one N one because they right. you know every everybody should take that, but then it turned out to be. A flash in the pan. It wasn't a, such a terrible pandemic. And besides, Tamiflu became – the virus became resistant to it, right? Well, it was more than that. The, and, and, uh, and side effects. I think, yeah, that's right. The Cochrane Group and others suggested that we review the source data. And they asked – I think it was Roche – please turn it over so we can check out your numbers. Right. They refused. And they took him to court. And the BMJ, BMJ, and I think Peter Doshi was involved in this, was part of this legal battle that went on for three years. And they finally got the source data on Tamiflu, and it was a bust. Mm-hmm. It barely did any good, right? It might have, you know, shortened the hospital stay, kind of like remdesivir, by the way, and uh, had a lot of nasty side effects that were underreported. So the source data is everything. And by and the way, the source data is locked FDA. up for the vaccines, I believe. There's some some provision yes. whereby it cannot be released for, what, 55 years or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're releasing it at such a sluggish pace that it would be over 50 years before it's all released. So this is unthinkable malfeasance on the part of the FDA who, who gave emergency use authorization for this shot and these other shots with based on... Uh, what were obviously to me shoddy, worrisome, pharma-sponsored studies, without asking for the source data, and you em- you embark on a vaccinate the entire world mm-hmm. campaign based on the say so of Pfizer, which is a criminal organization. I mean, you should see the number of uh, cases they've had against yes. them, and and with major it, major it, fines as it, well in many cases. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's outrageous. Outrageous. How can you do this as, as a public servant supposed to protect the public? Well, how, how you, you do it is, is, you, is you turn this into the zombie apocalypse and then, you know, the floodgates open for approvals. Uh, and right. you know, we need to, we need a measured response. Look, there's a devastating pandemic. There's no question that there's a lot of death associated with this. And, uh, but, you know, we need to take a more, uh, measured approach to this. Uh, and by protecting the vulnerable, uh, but, uh, you know, mandates, lockdowns, uh, the horrible social and economic dislocation that this has caused, uh, a lot of missteps made. Uh, what, from, from your analysis, you know, what's in it for Fauci? Um, I don't think, I personally don't think Fauci is, is a money guy. I don't think he's, I mean, I think he's well off. I think he's done well. Uh, but I think it's more about power and, and legacy. Uh, and a mistaken belief in, you know, his mission to save the planet. What's your take? It's hard to say. I mean, I admired Fauci in the early days. I, I was very into, uh, I had a patient who I diagnosed at during my intern residency days with Wegener's granulomatosis. So I, uh-huh. I naturally read all his papers on Wegener's, which, by the way, were not our CTs, right? They were not randomized control trials right, ever. Right. They were always observational trials, but they were very helpful. Yeah. 
because, you know, this is a rare disease and very lethal. And when you have a drug treatment protocol that seems to work, you publish the results. And yes, this is how we practice medicine back in the good old days. So I admired him for that. But then he became entrenched as a bureaucrat. He's established quite a power base there. He controls many billions in funding. So he has a, an iron grip on so many institutions around the country who depend on NIH and NIAID grants uh, that he can tell them what to do, and they do it. But he is clearly involved with the gain-of-function research, funding it uh, through the EcoHealth Alliance. The they they offshored it. They offshored it. It was something that really wasn't permitted in the U.S., and they said, well, you know, we've got to do it, so let's, let's do it with uh, our partners in China. Yeah, go for it. That's right. That's right. He's involved in the vaccine development process. I think he has money tied up in that. Mm-hmm. He was heavily promoting Gilead's remdesivir. I'm sure that they are into him in some way. He was acting like a drug shill. I mean, right. we know these people. Right? Well, there's a We've certain amount of over and over again. It seems to me there's a certain amount of entrepreneurship by the government because the government partners and actually uh, makes money off of. Yeah, off of pursuing these these strategies, right? Uh, they make our money off of pursuing this right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's been it's been great all around for these big players. Absolutely, they've they've never had it so good, and that's why, by the way, it's never going to end. Sorry to break it to your listeners, but there will be no end to this. Uh, variant after variant will come along. The variants, of course, emerge because of the selective pressure applied by these ineffective leaky shots. I, I agree with you, Richard. You know, a lot of people have said the opposite. They've said it's the unvaccinated who are causing the variants to arise because if we can only eradicate the virus, then there wouldn't be any uh, vulnerable people to act as petri dishes to allow it to mutate and proliferate. But I think it's the opposite. I agree with you. And I've read scientific papers that suggest that leaky vaccines, vaccines that are only partially effective, uh, put selective pressure on the virus. The virus is called virus. It wants to elude the vaccines and it keeps it, it it speeds the development of variants. It does. And, and to the extent that they do pr- get, uh, get uh, the body to produce antibodies, they're not neutralizing. And in fact, they may facilitate uh, entry of the viruses into cells. And they also compete with your innate antibody yep. system and make you more vulnerable to infection. And in fact... There is a big increase in COVID infections immediately following the first shot. Hmm. And these tricky guys, okay, have figured out, and you can see this in all the original papers, that they don't really start counting until yeah. at two weeks after the yes. second shot. They, they say, and well, it takes time to kick in. It takes time to kick in, right. That's, but, that's, that's what they yeah. say. Yeah. That's their rationale. Yeah. But of course, it should all be based on intention to treat analysis where as soon as you randomize, you're in that group and that your outcome must be recorded, if you, even if you get nothing, yeah. right? But certainly if you get one shot and don't get the others, you should, and you die, let's say, between your first and second shot, which I'm sure people did, that must be recorded as a treatment effect. Yeah. But they didn't do that. They start the counting two weeks after the second shot. So it's unscrupulous and it's... Trickery. I mean, what? The, it's it's fraud, frankly. So, uh, yeah, I don't think the shots were ever 
effective against uh, death. That ne they've never shown that. They've never been shown to block even transmission. We know that it's obvious now they don't. That was the claim at first and, is, you know, stop the spread, you know, do your part and that whole thing. And then there's still people, well, that's to, to, to this day, there are people who, uh, if you have not been vaccinated, and you've experienced this because you say you've not been vaccinated, uh, they think yep. you're typhoid Mary. They don't want to be in the same room with you. Uh, right? That's I mean, right. Friends, they, relatives, they, yeah, you get uh, basically canceled. <laughs> exactly. They've launched this incredible campaign to demonize unvaccinated people. Again, unprecedented. Well, unless you consider, you know, the Nazi era when they uh, got a segregated group and blamed the, the ills of the world on this group, uh, then you can go back to that era. But we've never done this before. And the, the unvaccinated, most of them have natural antibodies at this point. The disease has been around a block many times. Everybody's been exposed. I had it. Uh, it, it, it's not fun, but you survive and you get antibodies. Yeah. And, early and, that, treatment and that works. ultimately, yeah, work that probably the is the way that this is going to end because the vaccine is less efficacious. People will catch new variants, hopefully in a milder form. And, uh, you know, as our experience in New York, New York is doing pretty well, but that's because we got body slammed in the early phases of this. And so many, there's such a high degree of background, natural immunity that, um, uh, there's less of a problem now. All right. There's lots to exactly unpack right. in, in this, you know, in this subject. But, you know, you've done a good job uh, introducing us to some of the aspects of the tyranny of evidence based medicine. I suggest you look it up. We'll provide a link to our listeners in the show synopsis. Uh, EBM is, uh, according to today's guest, it encourages totalitarian medicine. And governments use EBM to control the practice of medicine, and it's become monolithic and a paint-by-numbers enterprise. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Matt Ammerling, for joining us today. Uh, information about uh, AAPS and yourself, do you have a website uh, where people can find out about you and also about... Uh, well, AAPS is certainly well worth, worth looking at, and they've got a lot of good COVID information there as well. Uh, they, they hosted, well, their annual meeting turned into a little mini COVID summit with uh, Peter McCullough, uh, Robert Malone, uh, Richard Urso, uh, Ryan Cole as speakers. It was really sensational. I advise checking out those videos, aapsonline.org. And America's Frontline Doctors also has a tremendous amount of very useful information, aflds.org, aflds.org. Uh, and you can find me personally on Twitter, at Dr. Amerling, until they, they ban me. I'm still there. Uh, I guess I'm not too much of a nuisance yet, so I'm sure I'll get there eventually. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I'm uh, also on Telegram again. Uh, that's seems yeah, that, to be a pretty decent that's, that's uh, a pretty, platform. Yeah, pretty a less censored so far. platform. A lot of people are messaging through Telegram. All right, good stuff. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, all the best to you in your struggle to get things right in a field that you very much love and want to stem the tide of medical oppression. Really appreciate it. Ron, it's such a great pleasure talking with you. Indeed. Thanks for joining us. That was Dr. Richard Ammerling. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.